Hello and welcome to this episode of our podcast Climate Matters where we'll be taking a closer look at the issue of air pollution and the effects of stubble burning. I'm Alina Tefain, a documentary photographer heading media and communications at Coach, and I'm Isha, a writer, curator and program manager at Coach. Coach is a not-for-profit contemporary arts organization based in New Delhi and one of the petitioners in the project in the matter regarding rights of nature, the subtext of which will be examined in this podcast. Our inquiry places us geographically in the Indo-Gangetic Plains with a focus on the national capital region, which includes the Indian states of Haryana, Uttar Pradesh and the Union Territory of New Delhi. As Delhi continues to choke under a thick blanket of smog, as the armed army in the capital continues to choke and suffer from hazardous health conditions. Badi khabar Delhi se, jahan air quality index aaj aur kharab ho gaya hai. Aaj Delhi ka ausat AQI 388 tak pohunch chuka hai. A huge fall of smog all around Delhi and the national capital region. It's not just uh, today or it's not just this year. It is the same story every single year. At the start of winter, there is a thick smog around the national capital region. The onset of winter, much like every single year, is a smoggy beginning. Extremely poor visibility, air that burns your eyes and itches your throat. And at this time, where the smoke has become a lot of pollution, although yesterday's response has got a little bit of relief. Which is why now the grab is removed and removed the third grab. Now the air quality in the national capital dropped to severe category today. These are the headlines that occupy our screens every year in the months of October and November, when the air quality index spikes with readings well beyond the hazardous mark of 301 and higher. This is in part due to the seasonal stubble burning that occurs in the neighbouring states of Punjab, where farmers, due to a restrictive timeline issued by the government of Punjab, to tackle the depleting groundwater levels are forced to clear their fields in preparation for the next harvest. In these regions, the paddy harvester machines are designed to shave off the grainy or the upper part of the crop, leaving loose straw in its wake. Farmers find it cheaper to clear the residue by burning it, causing a significant rise to the already pre-existing issue of air pollution in the region. The reasons for this is twofold. One, experts point to topographical reasons that provide the favourable conditions for air to be trapped. And two, is that it is one of the most densely populated zones on the planet. We spoke to one such expert, Disha Shetty, an award-winning science journalist, who has been reporting on the impacts of climate change, environment and public health with a focus on women and marginalized communities. So I'll start with what we know about air pollution in on the large scale. We know that about 7 million premature deaths occur annually because of air pollution around the world. And about 99% of the world's population breathes in air whose quality is much worse than uh, the standards that WHO has set. 
so the air pollution levels are higher than the standards in in cities like uh, delhi lahore uh, mostly cities in the indo gangetic plain the air pollution levels are substantially worse than the rest of the world so some of the world's most polluted cities are in this region we know that some of it is just because of the topography of the region it's a plain himalayas on, are on one side so that blocks the flow of air on or to the south is a plateau so it's a slightly raised plateau and so air can get trapped in this zone but it's also one of the most densely populated zones on the planet which is essentially saying that the region itself is a source of a lot of air pollution and then that air pollution gets trapped in the same region it doesn't really flow elsewhere which is why you see some of the world's most polluted cities in this zone and this is not just an indian problem uh, pakistan india bangladesh um, so all the countries in the region and now increasingly nepal to some extent bhutan is also facing issues of air pollution disha as someone who has been reporting on health in this region what are the predominant health impacts that you're witnessing climate change is having a lot of different kinds of impacts in india so first you have the rise in extreme weather events so floods droughts but also these floods cause landslides in the himalayan region for instance you have sea level rise in sundarbans you have coastal erosion across eastern western coast of india you have desertification and you have the changing patterns of monsoons so all of these have some kind of direct or indirect impacts on human health so the direct impacts from extreme weather events for instance floods can be death obviously or rise in infectious diseases in the aftermath of floods we have intensifying heat waves now again these heat waves can cause a range of impacts from heat strokes to worsening um, kidney function and they can also be fatal so death so climate change is leading to agriculture becoming unsustainable and so what you tend to see is the men move to cities in search of employment to run the family and so the women are left in charge as the head of the households and also in charge of these low yield farms so what happens is they were all already overworked in households and now suddenly they're also in charge of the farmland solely of course a large number of women in living in rural areas already farmers but now they're also primary caregivers within the households heads of the households and heads of all decisions related to farms and that takes an immense toll on their physical health because you'll see them working from dawn to dusk on their mental health because these weren't necessarily the jobs that they were trained for they also don't hold the same social clout that the men do and so there's a lot of distress and pressure increasing pressure on their physical and mental health is is what i see anecdotally we have some evidence from um, the latest science that says that women led households are also more prone to malnutrition as the impacts of climate change intensify That was Disha explaining how the health impacts of climate change have far-reaching consequences, especially for women and those living on the peripheries. So, Isha, then the question really is: What are some of India's mechanisms to deal with these environmental issues that's clearly causing 
so much distress on the public health front. You know, Anina, to answer that precisely and to understand the global perspective of India being a front runner in environmental law and jurisprudence, while these still remain the ground realities, we spoke to Shivani Ghosh, an environmental lawyer who has worked closely with the National Green Tribunal of India and has undertaken several research projects to understand the mechanisms within the legal and statutory framework. Uh, so you're right that India has been considered to be kind of the front runner in legislative enactments on environment. But the issue has always has been raised as a question of implementation. But it's also, in my opinion, and many of us who work in this area, no longer a question of implementation is a big, big, big question. But apart from that, it's also the design and relevance of some of these laws which were actually passed several decades ago. So, for instance, you know, you refer to air quality. Now, the Air Prevention and Control of Pollution Act, 1981, the act was designed in a way that it focused on sources of pollution that were most significant in the 1980s. That's not where we are in 2023. And there's hardly been any amendment to that law. In the last five to seven years, there's been a lot of writing. And in fact, the National Clean Air Program also identifies the problem that air quality is not a state-specific or a city-specific problem. It's a regional problem, an airshed level problem. But our laws do not acknowledge that regulation has to be done at an airshed level. And therefore, even if you were a leader in the 1980s coming up with a law on air quality, it really is not that relevant in 2023, where you're still trying to regulate or mitigate pollution sources at city level or at maximum at state jurisdictional boundaries, when the evidence is so clear about pollution moving across airship. And another example, if you talk about the National Green Tribunal Act of 2010, India is often cited as an example of a country which has a specialized environmental tribunal or a court to adjudicate on issues of natural resource and environmental concerns. But what is the point of having a law as far back as 2010 when you don't have a fully functional tribunal? And this has been uh, documented over the years that for several of the benches of the National Green Tribunal haven't functioned, have sporadically functioned because members have not been appointed. In the beginning, it had so many teething troubles that the Supreme Court actually had to intervene to even ensure that the members had office space, residential space. So things like that. It's really a question to be thought through more carefully is that there's no point in passing a law. Parliament may pass as many laws as it is wants. But at the end of the day, many other things, infrastructure, political will, the ability of the political class to make appointments on time to fill vacancies. We're looking at state pollution control boards, which are front runners of pollution in mitigation across the board, across the country. They are running at vacancies of 30% and more. And research at the Center for Policy Research, which I had been, I've been associated with for so many years, we found out through a lot of the right to information applications that we filed and through interviews that people who are heading these boards, the chairpersons and the member secretaries, do not even have the qualifications to head such a technical board or a technical body. So 
what's the point of having a Water Act in 1974 and an Air Act in 1981 if we cannot have technically qualified or appropriately qualified persons heading the board? So yeah, so there are several issues with the statement one when it's made that India has been a front runner on you know environmental and ecological laws because these laws are on paper. If you look at the State Pollution Control Board composition, they don't have any health professionals. So no public health person who knows public health understands the impact of poor environmental quality on health is a member of a pollution control board. So I mean, that's where we are, that that our decision makers and our regulators do not have the in-house capacity to look at this issue and its impact on public health. And I think one of the reasons is that we still consider air pollution to be an environmental problem, which it isn't. I mean, it is, but it isn't only an environmental problem. And once you start slotting things as an environmental issue alone, then the problem is the way political economy, you look at how important is environment in the larger scheme of things, it isn't. So unless we recast the air quality issue as a social public health crisis, which requires political will, requires momentum across the society, it's not going to be resolved because naming something as an environmental problem will always deprioritize it because it inevitably come into the construct of development versus environment. And in India, traditionally, environment has always lost when pitted against development. To unpack the historicity of this and to understand how India has historically dealt with the issue of air pollution, we spoke to Dr. Abhadendra Sharan the author of Smoke and Dust, Air Pollution and Colonial Urbanism, on the role of the Smoke Nuisance Commissions set up by Lord Curzon in 1905 and their contemporary significance. What Curzon did was he invited somebody who was a trained expert in this field from England and they set up this uh, commission. It is interesting why they set up the commission because the fear expressed by Indians, especially Indian mill owners, in Bombay uh, was that if there was a sole inspector, then that inspector would become very powerful, would start troubling the industry. So they needed a wider body on which they could also be represented to which the smoke inspector would report. So what gets formed in Calcutta and Bombay are these smoke nuisances commission. These are formed in 1905 and 1912. These commissions work very hard. They claim that they were very successful. Other evidence suggests that they were not as successful. And certainly when it comes to domestic smoke, this issue was never quite addressed. So indoor smoke remains very much an unaddressed issue. Now what happens is in the post-colonial period, this uh, Smoke Nuisances Commission continues well into the 50s. I haven't followed what happens after the 50s. And, and seems to be doing its uh, task as it had done before. One difference that happens is that the inspectors who used to be only Europeans earlier, gradually Indians also are given that rank. And when the pollution control boards are formed, this element that the inspectorate must be technically well-equipped is very much also part of how pollution control boards function. That This is a technical side of handling pollution. And uh, in 1981, after the Air Pollution Act, comes into being, we have this uh, Pollution Control Board and then the Water Act before that. So these Pollution Control Boards uh, act uh, in ways that are both similar to these commissions but also vastly different. 
these commissions were also a way in which uh, which were not responsive to popular questions. Of course, when you're working in a democratic context, as these pollution control boards have to do, there is a different context. However, I must say that some of the complaints that the commission members used to make earlier, uh, lack of uh, adequate uh, personnel, lack of money, those complaints uh, can be heard as frequently about the pollution control boards, that uh, they are not necessarily the best financed and best staffed. Uh, but in terms of the mission, the most radical change has been that now pollution control boards can set standards, environmental standards. This was not the game earlier. So the Smoke Nuisances Commission were only concerned with how to reduce the total volume of smoke, but there was no standard against which this could be measured. So this is very different from setting up ambient air quality standards, etc., as these are done these days. So in that sense, they are an important precursor to the later pollution control boards, but with this important difference that earlier they were only interested in reducing the overall volume without a sense of what is the quality that you need, whereas now they are very explicit standards against which you can benchmark how well you have done or not done. Even as Abhudendra unpacked for us the history of how the state pollution control boards came into existence, it left us wondering what this perceived weakness of the boards has done to the redressals of environmental issues. As I said to you, historically, if these were seen as public nuisances, there is a set of court cases that continues to be fought under that heading uh, till about uh, the famous Ratlam municipality case in which Justice Krishna Iyer gave his famous judgment that it was the responsibility of the state to provide adequate facilities to the poor. Till then, uh, the language of nuisance was quite used and the idea of public nuisance. Now, this word continues to be used. Even in contemporary court cases, you'll find people arguing on grounds of public nuisance. However, the important shift that has happened, which is why you would think of a court case, is from the mid-1990s, I have called it the constitutional turn in environmental politics, is that more and more cases are going to the Supreme Court and now the National Green Tribunal. And uh, in a recent piece that I have just finished writing, I've cited two authors how within a decade this shift happens when the uh, environmental litigation in India is seen as something that not of much concern to the Supreme Court and within a decade after that, somebody else make an assessment that now it is the one thing which you can find in the Supreme Court. So it's a very quick transition that happens sometimes late 80s, early 90s. Uh, but what you can see is that the court becomes a site where environmental issues are more and more put up. And then all of this comes under Article 21, which is right to life. So right to clean air becomes part of right to life and how that is read. Now, this constitutional turn is very important to understand and that it's an open question. Is that the best possible site to seek remedy? Or are there other ways in which uh, one ought to address environmental issues or other institutional forums and leave the courts to deal only when there's a blatant violation of, of something? These are questions that will concern us, but this constitutional turn is definitely a very marked thing that has happened recently over the last couple of decades. And the court itself became so overwhelmed that they had to go for a national green tribunal. 
and there also there are studies now about different phases of the national green tribunal so there's a very fast transition that is happening there in terms of uh, how we address these cases and now we tend more and more to take these to the tribunal and get some kind of a judgment on these cases but there were other kinds of mobilization if you recollect uh, Chipko is not known for the court cases that were filed. If there were some filed in the local courts, I would not know. Narmada eventually did go to court, but the movement itself is not entirely a court move, directed movement or a court-oriented movement. Uh, but now, on especially on urban environmental issues, that seems to be the case that we have chosen the courts and the tribunal as the site to fight these battles. And that change needs to be noted. And along with this constitutional shift in turn in environmental politics comes the question of representation. Are the metrics of pollution too focused on urban cityscapes at the cost of excluding the rural parts of the country? No, you're absolutely right. Another aspect of this urban-centric focus that policy seems to have adopted is that we pretend that rural areas don't have air pollution. The fact that we policymakers and others tend to forget that the farmers are the first victims of uh, stubble bur- pollution from stubble burning is an example of that. But I mean, if you look at data that's coming out from the research, I believe 83% of India's population is exposed to air quality, which doesn't meet the national ambient air quality standard. Evidence does not support this urban-centric policy formulation at all. As I mentioned earlier, pollution does not remain in city limits. It crosses over city limits and is extensive in rural areas and peri-urban areas. An example of that is the transportation that happens across the country and pollution from vehicular and freight transport. I mean, that's not restricted to cities. It's across the country. So there's no reason for us to believe that cities are worse off. Cities may have more dense population. That doesn't mean that rural population are exposed to uh, toxic levels of pollution. Another aspect of this is the monitoring system. If you look at the monitoring network that uh, has been set up and continues to be increased in terms of number of monitors, they are all in cities. You hardly have monitors in peri-urban and rural areas. So we actually don't even know what kind of air quality significant part of the country is experiencing. Even within cities, in that sense, Delhi and the NCR is privileged in courts to have, I think it's about 38 or more than that, monitors. In big cities, I mean, we have big cities like Lucknow, Mumbai, Kanpur. I mean, all of these, let's look at the number of monitors they have. Even if we were to assume that it's a city-level problem, if you have one monitor in a city of the size of Lucknow or or Kanpur or Bangalore or Hyderabad. I'm not saying they have one, but they may have two, but I'm just making a point here. That's not good enough either. So it's certainly a problem that needs to be taken head on, that we have to consider this to be not a city problem. So it's not a city problem. And as our conversation with Disha indicated, It is not a problem that is experienced equally by all genders, with evidence pointing to the disproportionate impacts of climate change on women and children globally. 
Now, especially with floods and with heat waves, you see that women are in low-income housing. So I'm not just talking about women in general, but women particularly in low-income housing and children are worse affected because they are the ones who tend to be either working from home or they are staying back at home. And so they're at a higher risk when floods happen because they might be in areas that are flood-prone. Low-income neighborhoods tend to be badly designed, tend to be in in low-lying areas or uh, built with extremely poor quality materials. So floods affect these uh, homes quite badly. During heat waves, and I did a story for the Fuller Project uh, from uh, Slum Pocket in Mumbai about how during heat waves you had women uh, who were working from home really struggling with a range of health impacts, which included things like anxiety. And there is research on how heat and extreme heat is affecting the maternal health. So pregnant women, for instance, are reporting rise in anxiety during heat waves. So many of these impacts are just beginning to be documented, but there is enough and more for us to know that it's a serious problem. I was part of the team of reporters that reported from three different countries. From Kenya, we looked at the connection between drought and violence against women. In India, I reported from Bihar looking at the connection between increased floods and violence against women. And we reported from the Philippines on, um, I believe it was increased typhoons and violence against women. So here's what it, it was in a nutshell. What evidence says is that climate change worsens extreme weather events like floods, droughts, hurricanes, cyclones, etc. And then what that does is that it increases economic distress for families. And economic distress is known to push up rates of violence against women. So the UN has documented evidence over um, several decades of working in conflict situations. And it's well established that whenever there's conflict, violence against women and intimate partner violence tends to rise. And that's a well-known, well-documented phenomenon. What we are now seeing is that because climate change is leading to a rise in extreme weather events, um, which are essentially disasters, they're mimicking that same pattern and you're seeing more distress, economic distress in households. And so um, because of pre-existing power equations within the families, the violence tends to worsen. So what is something that I want to highlight is that we're not saying climate change causes violence against women to rise. We're saying wherever violence against women exists already or the conditions for violence against women to go up exists already, climate change worsens that. Climate change worsens the pre-existing conditions. And we we have evidence from several countries around the world already at this point about how during a heat wave, distress calls to helplines will go up from women. Or during a drought situation, you'd see more intensifying violence against women in Kenya. Uh, so where I reported from in Bihar, the women were quite... Um, They were saying quite upfront about the fact that whenever there is no food to eat, they get beaten up. For them, it was as simple as that. Um, So that's how it plays out. You know, Isha, 
while the invisibilization of women and the growing rates of violence against them and other gender minority groups is already a major concern in the country, it seems like the climate crisis could increasingly become a contributing factor. That is a very valid and a concerning point. And according to the UN Environment, it is estimated that 80% of people displaced by climate change are women. And I wonder where we go from here, considering how complex and far-reaching these consequences can be. I am perhaps deep down still an optimist hoping that if a few of us work hard enough and get a few more to work on it, that incrementally some changes will keep happening. And also I believe because now I, you know, as I practice before the Supreme Court and the National Green Tribunal as a practicing lawyer, that if some of us don't work on these issues and speak for many of these groups and communities and voices, who will? I mean, someone needs to speak for them. Someone needs to speak for the environment. Someone needs to speak for the communities and people who are affected. Sometimes it's as simple as someone needs to speak for simple and strong science. Some of the things that are happening have no, no basis in science or reason. I just feel that maybe I can contribute in some little way in doing that. I have been fortunate to be surrounded by uh, mentors and people who have been similarly driven despite depressing circumstances. And I guess that mentorship goes a long way in, in keeping one interested and wanting to keep going and I guess. I was covering the World Health Assembly remotely and uh, air pollution is a huge uh, conversation. Um, climate change is also a huge com uh, conversation and uh, uh, it's been recognized that um, climate change is obviously having huge health impacts. In terms of solutions though, I didn't see a lot of countries very clear on what their solutions could look like. And then that was left to a lot of citizen-driven initiatives. So that was something that is missing. We do have recognition of these problems at the global level. We know that these are issues. We also know there are people want change and people want solutions. And we also have solutions that can be deployed. But what we are currently missing is across the board, across globally, we are currently missing government action. And we are missing that intent to act. Uh, climate change, for instance, or environment has never become a political issue. These are not issues on which voters vote. Why they are not issues on which voters vote is not very clear to me. But at this point, that's the switch that has not happened. Um, maybe the governments feel like it's too difficult to do these large-scale large scale changes. Maybe the status quo works. Because it's not even that, you know, like in India, we've deployed uh, solar electricity on a fairly large scale. And it's turned out to be uh, cost effective. The cost of so generating solar electricity and wind electricity has crashed in the past one decade. So it's very cheap to do this now. People are open to these solutions and excited about these solutions. I just did a story uh, for the Fuller Project on how solar in Rajasthan, where power cuts are still the norm in rural areas, are helping women run small businesses like uh, they use solar powered refrigerators to store milk so women who are predominantly cattle farmers find this very helpful as milk is a perishable commodity solar is available free of cost at least the solar energy 
they're able to generate in incomes by using solar powered refrigerators to store their milk so these are solutions that are already there at the global level also we we are seeing a certain amount of inertia and policies are very slow to change but whenever they are put in place we see that they aren't as difficult to scale up as we imagine them to be i think over the last two and a half decades the nature of public participation has grown tremendously there are all kinds of people who are involved from people who produce new machines the commercial players who are into this thing about air purifiers personal wearable sensors there's a whole economy around this issue that has come up then there are people who are civil activists who run campaigns who who try and build uh, opinions about what is wrong what is right there's there are people in the medical field who have become very very vocal and write about the issue there are people like yourselves who provide platforms to artists to express their concerns so the whole thing has opened up the one thing that has not become as prominent but i know it exists and which probably can more can be done with is of voices of people who live and are exposed to great degrees of pollution in their daily lives and so one has to work together to try and think of where does environment fit into livelihoods where does it fit into education possibilities where does it fit into health so i think those who bring and want to bring their own voices cannot afford to wait for an invitation they will have to do their work and push their way in and say that our voices also matter and we hope that in time broad coalitions can be formed where different kinds of people and their voices can begin to be heard it's with this thought that we'd like to wrap up today's episode thanks for tuning in and be sure to join in for more on stage we would like to leave you with this quote by cameroonian historian and political theorist ashile mambe breath is a right that is universal in the sense that we all breathe but we do not simply breathe individually we also share the vital breath the universal right to breathe is unquantifiable and cannot be appropriated not only is it the right of every member of humankind but of all life it must therefore be understood as a fundamental right to existence moreover it is an originary right to living on earth a right that belongs to the universal community of earthly inhabitants human and other for more riveting content please check out tba21 on stage at www.stage.tba21.org tba21 on stage is editor in chief is francesca tisen bonamitza content curator soledad gutierrez project manager nina speranda curatorial assistant john aranguren audio editor alvaro tior theme music carl michael von hauswolf and i am madeline robinson thank you for listening <coughs>